This is a book review of Carl R. Truman's book called A Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Uh, as I read the title too, I, uh, it's a great reminder of what was inside of it, as anyone who does reviews. And as I thought, I probably should have been giving reviews like a, like a score of 10, I guess, over time. Um, and I'm not sure if that would uh, change up, you know, my thinking, uh, for when I go back and review or if I listen to it or it'll, it'll help anything whatsoever. But the reason why I thought I should give some ratings, uh, going forward is, uh, in case anyone, you know, uh, reads any of the particular books and then looks at my scoring, my personal scoring of it as to how I perceive it and view it. And then they may be similar, they may be unsimilar, there may be some symmetries or asymmetries, but it may be interesting. <clears throat> and this book would uh, be a 9 out of 10. The only reason why it's not a 10 out of 10, it's actually my fault, not uh, the author's, um, is that it's uh, it was short. Now, there's an inside story to that that this book is actually a shortened version version of the rise and triumph of the modern self uh, by Truman. But his friend, um, who wrote When Harry Became Sally, um, an infamous tale of uh, this conversation around sexual identities when Harry uh, met Sally, sorry, um, or sorry, when Harry became Sally, responding to the transgender movement by Ryan Anderson. He's a friend of Carl's, and he just told him, like, you need to shorten this up so people can read it. So I'm appreciative that it ended up being, what is this, 187 pages. Um, and that's the reason why I'm giving it a 9 out of 10. Otherwise, it's like 12 out of 10. Um, it's really good. I'd heard Carl speak on the Subversive podcast. I can't pronounce Alex's last name, so uh, just head on over there to Subversive. And uh, generally more uh, right-minded dissidents or right thinkers, uh, capital R, right, um, and depending upon what your sway is, uh, regardless, I'd suggest it. Uh, just listen a couple of times, take your biases away, and and listen into what these individuals are saying. Very interesting to keep going on that point of the podcast. Uh, the The way that she goes about doing it is <clears throat> uh, with the premise of her belief that the the great conversations are actually happening with the anonymous groups that are not in power uh, in the interwebs found on, as she would describe it as, anon Twitter. Um, and thus far listening in, um, I would agree that, uh, a lot of the greatest conversations and the philosophical, how to deal with the philosophical conundrums and, uh, real intellects that are not performative or just out there today, no one knows about. And, uh, the, the podcast is, uh, is, has the ability to host people like uh, Carl Truman. Anyways, I went to look at uh, purchasing 
as I said, the bigger booklet. Um, and I got this one. I'm very happy for it. Um, this was the heading on the back, or the language on the back. As identity politics quickly gain influence, they're creating confusion around aspects of personhood and morality that were once certain. From the sexual revolution to gay marriage and gender issues, the personal has become politicized. What should our response be? In Strange New World, Carl Truman examines the historical, philosophical, and technological factors driving identity politics today. Excuse me. This concise version of his popular book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, offers an accessible analysis of influences, including technology and pornography, as well as cultural ideologies from the Romantics to the New Left. Offering a much-needed biblical perspective of personhood, Truman confronts the current era of expressive individualism, showing readers how to engage in a culture that's often hostile to Christian beliefs. And a bit about the author. Carl is a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He is a contributing editor at First Things, an esteemed church historian, and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Truman has authored or edited more than a dozen books, including The Creedal Imperative, Luther on the Christian Life, and The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He is a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So as I mentioned from the outset, his friend Ryan did the uh, foreword to kind of give a summary of how this book came to be. And then in the preface, uh, Carl kind of gets at what this book is going to be about. Um, and let's see here. There's nine chapters. Uh, Welcome to this strange new world, romantic roots, Prometheus unbound, sexualizing psychology, politicizing sex, the revolt of the masses, plastic people, liquid world, the sexual revolution of the LGBTQ+, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and strangers in this strange new world. And if I can put the book away and kind of think about, um, to start beyond what was described in the back of the book, uh, what the author goes through, um, or how he comes to that situation. He largely does a historical analysis of how society has moved to come to this current situation. And he takes it through um, uh, an interesting an interesting starting point and you know uh, which I which re resonates. Uh, he does take it through an era of uh, reason and enlightenment and growth of intellect, and uh, that makes sense. And it makes sense to me, you know, personally. But what he finishes with, um, I don't see eye to eye on. Um, in reducing down to, you know, just strictly being a Christian, and that'll be the answer for a lot of people. Um, 
but it does continue on this ongoing, you know, thought process that I have that at the current moment in time, I really don't think there are other institutions or other ways of going about fixing this thing besides the fact of a possible, you know, uh, Christian perspective. Um, because if I was to, as I said, st strip down all the things that uh, I would agree upon with a Christian, um, a lot of the things uh, just make sense. But I think they make sense for different reasons than what they think makes sense. But uh, these are the things that we agree upon. And I mention that because Carl finishes by putting it in a way that um, it does make sense without, excuse the language, it's the only thing I can think of, Bible thumping or hitting people with a Bible. Um, and it, again, it, it's another example in this book of, of uh, the current the current, let's call it issue, that is going on today that, you know, the, the idea, well, the simple things of the sexual revolution, let's say, I shouldn't say simple, but as the idea, you know, when it lands now, it lands as a burden in the lap of the religious um, and the believing. But I don't think that they have the tools to deal with it because everyone who's, or a lot of people who would be non-believers on the other side, uh, won't agree with the believers by saying something like, you know, don't be promiscuous uh, at 13 years of age or drink alcohol or, you know, um, I'm not saying these, these are codes for Christianity or beliefs itself, but there's moral practices and values inside of that. And I think that's why we, we probably will never see eye to eye. Um, and this is where we are. We are in that, those times where you have a lot of individuals, let's call it politically realigning, uh, without their beliefs being thrown on the table. But when all those people get together, eventually, like some minds are and some books are getting at this, and they come together, and then they start to try to come to an agreement on ideals, etc. When it goes beyond just basic principles, I really think there's going to be some issues, disagreements. But I don't think we can get to the table. Um, I really don't think because there's a lot of people who are non-believers that are scared shitless of thinking that because they read a book like this by Carl Truman, who is an Orthodox uh, Presbyterian church leader, that they're gonna, just going to fall prey to all the things that are inside of the doctrine. You know. So will it, will it take time for individuals to get to the point where they can, you know, or society can, especially in America specifically, can move to that point where it's it you come at the lens of fixing things from what makes sense as opposed to 
a belief or a non-belief area. You know, I, I called it the reactive religiosity or overreactive religiosity idea. Um, because I don't think that group has the toolbox. Uh, they don't have the strategic or operational toolbox um, that the, um, the, the more left, um, or let's call it the new left, has in the new left non-believers. I don't think they have. I think that group has the strategic and operational uh, savviness that's going to keep this thing moving. It's going to keep the tension there. It's going to keep the um, it's going to keep less conversation about these particular things. Anyways, um, Carl does a great job of taking us through you know, the definition, definitions of, you know, the basics of the self, the definitions of it, what he calls expressive individualism and where it came from. The definition would be expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. And Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor sees this expressive individualism as the normative modern notion of selfhood in the West. He specifically connects it to what he dubs the culture of authenticity, which he describes as follows. The culture of authenticity is one where each one of us has his, her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. So you can see what Carl is getting at here in starting off with this description of expressional individualism. And I'm sure with further reading and probably with his larger volume book and digging into that further, um, I could see some chinks in that armor of the positives inside of expressive individualism, but it's packaged today based upon how you heard me just read it. You could see how we're getting in trouble because we're, we're taking feelings over facts, right? And we're, we're identifying the feelings as being uber important, you know? And so for some, you may say that this is quite important, but, in the case for today, you can also see how it's got us into trouble. He then goes on to describe the sexual revolution and how, in his words, it uh, normalized unusual behavior uh, where there once was concepts of, um, let's just use the word modesty in his terminology. Um, it immediately became um, a uh, it went beyond the stigmas, as Truman would say, it went beyond just stigmas of conversation. And it brought us to the point where sexual acts in themselves, and I'll read from here, it has brought us to the point where sexual acts in themselves are seen as having no intrinsic moral significance. It is the consent, or not, of those engaging in them that provides the moral framework. 
and you know from what i've read as well as what's only in these short words here that's a challenging proposition i, I know for people to understand um but it gets us to realize why we think the way that we do today you know if we've had many years to go after that but uh, chapter summary he basically um, you know gets us to the point of understanding uh, the sexual re sexual revolution itself and I'll read from a piece here you know as that's to get to the premise of the book in this conclusion of the first chapter um, to respond to our times, we must first understand our times. That is my goal, which is great. The premise of the book is basically to create understanding. I love that. Anyways, the last uh, paragraph says, think about the sexual revolution. This is more than the result of a group of radical students in the 1960s discovering the work of Wilhelm Reich. The reason society thinks about sex the way it does is the result of the confluence of a host of factors. The pill made it cheap and easy to separate sex from procreation. In short, it made sex as recreation a far more practical option than it had been before. The advent of Playboy and then Cosmopolitan in mainstream culture presented promiscuity as a cool, attractive lifestyle for men and women alike. The rise of no-fault divorce reduced marriage to a sentimental bond. The rhetoric of feminism asserted women's control over their own bodies and sexuality. The internet massively expanded the accessibility of pornography, and as more people used it, the social stigma it traditionally carried was diminished. Soap operas and sitcoms, even commercials, presented sex as a cost-free pastime. The list goes on, but the picture is clear. A complex set of factors, from philosophy to technology to pop culture, shape the way we intuitively think about sex. Indeed, they shape the way we think about the world in general and our place within it. And that is why thinking about our situation in terms of the social imaginary is so helpful. In short, it deals with us as we are and not simply as beings constituted by a set of disembodied ideas. We do not so much think about the world as we intuitively relate to it. And I got to give it to Carl because at the end of each chapter, he has study questions. I shit you not, which is fantastic. I wish more books would have that. I found myself easily answering the study questions. He has three at the end of chapter one. I just thought it was a great idea. <laughs> Next chapter is Romantic Roots. And this is where he takes us through, I guess, all this, you know, really old initial beginnings of the idea of self and expressive individualism and selfhood and being. You know, what does being mean? Um, from Rene Descartes through uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was, um, uh, yeah, yeah, which he had some issues with David Hume, which I find, you know, interesting. Um, he talks about uh, Rousseau's backgrounds and his earlier works, um, you know, a, this is his, uh, to, this is quoting Carl's book on what he says is Rousseau's take on born moral. And I read, taken together, these two observations provide an anecdotal example of what Rousseau expresses in more theoretical terms in his famous first and second discourses. That it is society that corrupts the individual. 
that individual corruption is not, as, say, the Christian theologian Augustine argued, the result of an innate tendency to lawbreaking inherited from our primeval, primeval ancestor, Adam. No, Rousseau rejects the Christian doctrine of original sin. We human beings are born essentially moral. It is the pressures brought to bear on us by society to conform ourselves to its conventions and demands, and our weakness towards flattery that explain our corruption. At least in the first instance, sin is really society's fault, not ours. Now, if you wanted to, side note for anyone listening, go on a different realm for morality and conversations around that, I'd suggest you read uh, The Mating Mind or The Selfish Gene. Um, uh, um, anything by Hitchens. <laughs> um, it'll give you at least some tastes for this whole, you know, it's, it's not really only two options, you know, or, are you born in original sin or are you born moral? Um, and all the things that, you know, contribute to what turns a person into a person, into a human. Um, I'd go in that direction. I wouldn't just stop at, uh, doing uh, hits on Rousseau as example. And throughout the chapter, he discusses romanticism um, in the way that he described it. I even wrote in the thing. Um, he says, again, here we see the power of nature and the passivity of human beings in truly shaping what it means to be human. And this expressed in deeply religious language. Nature is powerful. And being sensitive to the voice of nature is necessary if one is to be a truly authentic human being. Now, when I read that, um, if, if that's what makes one a romantic, then that's me. <laughs> you know, just the wording in itself, in itself, I really don't give a shit if people think that my language is religious or not. I would disagree if you think that all my language comes from a religious precept or even society from a religious precept. But, it, you know, and again, it doesn't matter. And if it's a capital N nature, yeah, I, uh, I'm very uh, aware of that and sensitive to the voice of nature. And anyways, he took us through, you know, some uh, different readings of uh, Wordsworth, John Wilson, uh, Coleridge, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, and gives us a, uh, uh, you know, a sum up, basically, you know, a sum up of uh, uh, what these romantic roots had to do with us getting to this issue with regards to sexuality and sexuality being politicized and the sexual revolution and what we're dealing with today. Uh, excellent sum up of 2023, I thought, in his uh, concluding paragraph. Given all this, we can see why the foul-mouthed politician has supplanted the polite and reserved one, because in a world where the inner voice is key to the real person, the former is authentic, while the latter presents a public image likely at odds with his private behavior. More pointedly, the trans person who was born male but claims to be a woman is to be lionized because that is an act of courage and honesty, whereby the outward performance is finally brought into line with the inner reality, despite what society might say about such. All of, these, all of this derives from authorizing, indeed valorizing, that inner voice of nature and then expecting or even demanding that the outside world from the public square to the individual's body conform to this. And now you can see where that's where it strikes at people's individuals, individuals difference in beliefs 
and how we get to, as example, I listen to a lot of right-wing uh, political theorists and political pundits and even center-right individuals, and they point their finger really hard at evil. Um, their language is the secular left, um, you know, very demonic in nature. They keep, you know, hitting that button. And for any of you who may have not realized that, this is this is the dividing lines. This is, you know, or I should say this is an aspect of where the dividing lines come from, is these, uh, you know, 1500s and 1600s and the 1700s, how we came to this understanding of uh, me and we, you know, and the balance between that. And also, if I'm speaking about me and myself and how to express myself individually, the question comes from, well, who should we look to as to where that expressive opportunity comes from? And my, my personal opinion, it sits on the nature realm and in others. People believe, I guess, in more beliefs that you're born uh, broken and uh, need to be fixed. And uh, people are not born possibly as being moral and so need to strive towards that. Now, there's no conversation in this particular uh, time or within this book to have that, but you can see where this this uh, is the crack, you know, and the difference between people's uh, perceptions of how we got to this problem. The next chapter is called Prometheus Unbound. Um, yeah, I would ask those to read uh, Race Marxism and Woke Marxism, those two books, um, to get a little bit more here. Um, but he takes a dive into Hegel, to Marx, uh, GWF Hegel, not Hegel, Hegel, H-E-G-E-L, who was the dominant influence, um, uh, to Karl Marx, and then talks about Marx's critiques, you know, and that takes a, a much, much more, let's call it, long-term reading to understand that. That's why I think the woke Marxism and race Marxism books are more common, you know, conversations, let's say, that are lengthy that will give you to a better understanding of that. Um, uh, just give you an, an idea based upon the reading here. Marx's materialism goes further. He believes that the material conditions of life, specifically the economic relations that exist between people, decisively shape how we think of reality. In short, it is those economic relations that have most profound impact upon our self-consciousness and our identity. This also means that how we think about reality changes over time because economic relations change. Marx discussed also this concept of alienation. Um, you know, Marx would say that uh, you know, um, work, different kinds of work is soul-destroying, but he would say that it's alienating, right? Do you see the two different lines there, right? Marx, Marx has a critique of religion, is, is not a believer. So you would say that you know, um, when he used the words, he wouldn't use the word soil, soul destroying. He would say something like it alienates individuals. It prevents men and women from being who they should be. Um, the author goes on to talk about Marx's critique of religion, which he does it in pretty short order, very succinctly, and I appreciate that. And then, of course, brings in uh, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, and all of his points of view. Um, and extensively, I think, gives it a little bit more... Um, more space for the understanding of it, you know, um, of the what what uh, Nietzsche described as this burden of being creatures of God, um, and instead gave us, uh, you know, 
I would say if there's contributions there that a lot of humans could get together on, um, that a lot of intellects today talk about is is uh, human beings being able to rise to the challenge of self-creation, of being whoever they choose to be. It sounds a little bit like language that people can get behind without having a religious connotation to it. But he does discuss that. Um, he also brings in a very interesting, uh, you know, uh, 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 goat as well as uh, Oscar Wilde and sees Oscar Wilde as that quote unquote rebellion. Um, and uh, it, it did make me go and uh, get into some readings <laughs> from Oscar Wilde, just about uh, the person as, as, as well. Um, but he does a good, he does a good, um, you know, description of how this all came to be from these particular thinkers. And uh, in his conclusion, he says, several points of significance for today emerge from an examination of the thought of Marx, Nietzsche, and Wilde. Marx's distinctive contribution is arguably the way in which his claim that human social relations are at root economic relations leads to the conclusion that all things are therefore political. To put this another way, it leads to the abolition of the pre-political because all forms of social organization have significance in serving the existing structure of society. This is why our current world is characterized by battles over such things as the Boy Scouts, cake baking, and school uniforms. On this front, Marx has won. For as soon as one side in the cultural conflict politicizes an institution, the other side has no choice but to engage on those terms. We are all, in a sense, Marxists now. Oof. Powerful conclusion, but I can see how he got to that point by where we're sitting on that of the conversation of the generalized language of focusing on the oppressed and the minority, right? Just think about that over the past 10 years, how often that language, regardless of the people screaming about it, um, it just it's just coming up in our language, our day-to-day -day language now of the focus and concentration. And it doesn't diminish the possibility of things that can be learned by looking at that and by looking at these particular groups and by looking at the, even the, the language of oppression, or the language of what does minority mean, right? But the, but the power is coming to arise in the identification of those particular things. And in that chapter, he gives a good idea as to how that all came about. So we get to this, you know, understanding that we're all in it for that today. The next chapter, uh, Sexualizing Psychology and Politicizing Sex. Um, the title pretty much tells you exactly what he goes through here. Um, he, of course, takes a Sigmund Freud route um, through to, you know, Freud's concepts of morality into, uh, you know, civilization. Um, he discussed how sex became political and the background of that. Um, where Marx meets Freud, he gives us some background of Wilhelm Reich, who I also did more reading into and then I'm going to have to dig into also. Uh, but these uh, groups in the 30s, 1930s, you know, led us to these uh, clear uh, schools and schools of thought um, because these, um, the sexual revolution began, in, in Truman's perspective, further back and where it led to these uh, political uh, changes that occurred through the 30s up all the way through into what we think was the only time of the sexual revolution in America of the 60s. But he concluded in the chapter by saying, we can now see that once identity is psychologized, 
anything that is seen to have a negative impact upon someone's psychological identity can potentially come to be seen as harmful, even as a weapon that does serious damage. This includes those words and ideas that stand over against those identities that society choose to sanction. This has clear implications for traditional freedoms, religion, and speech. Yeah, so he sets us up, basically gave us a background as to how uh, politicizing sex came to be. And then um, leads into, of course, the next point of called the revolt of the masses. And I love the way that he puts the perspective of moving from a fixed world to a plastic world. And I had taken that to note, I have called it something different in systematics before, but I love the way he used a physical phenomena to get us to that. And, you know, and, and basically, you know, if you want to think of it in short terms, um, fixed world would be man and woman and plastic world would be 14 options for uh, gender, right? So fixed world would be man, woman, sex, um, and plastic world would be 14 options of gender. Now that says nothing to the right or wrong or the up or down or left or right or et cetera, but it is a very interesting perspective to take with regards to um, the, the age old conversation of, you know, the uh, percentages and what uh, Charles Murray strictly calls a very important look at the measurement and the objective measurements of the effect size Right? What are the actual numbers that we're talking about when it comes to that? And how are you determining what that measurement is? And we can't come to those 14 genders in the end, by the way, um, unless we have all agree upon what comes down to the objective measurement of those things. Um, and if you think that, well, it's just based upon what someone's perception is, you can again see why, you know, um, huge percentages, 70 to 80% of all humans, especially all Americans, will all agree, and these are many Gallup polls, et cetera, that have showed this, they all agree that there is only two sexes, yet the conversation would make one think, if you're in the 70, 80% in years 2023, that there's 14 options of that. So you can see where this gets us into trouble from this interesting perspective that Carl gives on uh, what I really love it. I love it so much. Sound like Trump there. I love it. Love it so much. Um, huge, huge, uh, huge uh, perspective. Um, a fixed world to a plastic world. Just so well done. Um, you know, he goes way back to discuss uh, his own particular geography and uh, how it came to understanding like the 1400s back were, you know, on that side of the pond where he was uh, born and raised, discussed peasants, nobles, and kings, discussed, uh, you know, order in society. Um, and he's giving this all as a starting point to see how we got to this collapse, right, of traditional authority, uh, specifically in what his points would be church, family, and nation. I would replace church with community, but that's just wordsmithing on my behalf. I would say community, family, and nation um, has been collapsing. And he gives a really great example of how we come to this, um, you know, idea where we layer technology and the new world examples of Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, 
uh, etc. And we find that the notion of life as public performance is being further reinforced, right? Everyone can be an Oscar Wilde today, you know, without his wit and sophistication. Um, and institutions have become party to this, you know? So this is, so the, again, this is where we are, right? We went from this, um, this, I guess, this order, and then order that was lost. And then, of course, you have pragmatists that come in um, to try to solve that. And now you just have the loudest minority who wins, right? It's not just minorities that win. It's the loudest minority that wins. Um, part of the chapter gets into contraception, pornography, and sex. Um, again, I would ask you to read a more recent, The End of the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry as a as a good starter for more conversation on this one from that. I think that lens would give just a lot, a lot of space for this. Um, but a very, very, he does a very effective con, a very effective way of, uh, getting to, to an understanding of how sex was politicized and how it came to be with this offering, you know? Um, one good thing that I picked up here that I underlined was, uh, um, a distinction that was deployed by philosopher Roger Scruton and uh, where Roger Scruton uh, said pornography is about bodies not faces if sex is just about my pleasure anybody will do as a partner but in a marriage the specific identity of the sexual partners is critical the purpose of sex is not to have sex but to make love to reinforce a relationship with a particular person, or to use Scruton's terminology, with a face, not just with a body. Um, and I just really like that, where I'm, I'm tying in the language of porn equaling bodies and intimacy equaling faces, you know, and in the way my language is anyways, of the differences between uh, intimacy and uh, relationship building and monogamy and a long-term partner, uh, it's about the face, you know, it is more about the face, whereas pornography and short-term pleasures and uh, freedoms, you know, is about bodies, just bodies alone. And so if you keep going down that road, you can see where there's lots of issues to be raised on, on that. Um, he then talks about the rise of transgenderism um, and how this came about in these, uh, in the readings in the 30s and 40s and 50s and um, what he would call the revolt of the elites, right? And um, how, you know, how big business is basically firmly on the side of progressivism yeah, as the ubiquity of the uh, LGBTQ plus rainbow flag in store windows and corporate websites during Pride Month now testifies. He, this uh, conclusion that he draws from this is that the uh, the loss of community, family, and nation has been replaced with political political identities, right? So not just politics the way you may think of it as right and left or Republican and Democrat, but just how you're politicizing your particular identity, right? You're identifying as something and you're saying that representation matters most. Actually, just, just to pick on our friends in the North, Canada has that in their government uh, language and all their government websites. Representation matters most. Right? So if you do think it's not really a thing, well, it is. It is a thing. 
And uh, unfortunately, we're at that point now where political identities have replaced uh, these, you know, traditional pieces of community, family, and nation. Um, and then moves into chapter six called Plastic People, Liquid World. Uh, you can just imagine, just based upon that language, how we got to this uh, conversation um, of, you know, where did all the uh, letters come from, right? By this language of communities and what it means to be a community and how to bring people together who are all thinking the same thing, you know? Um, and discussed how the original points of uh, the Reformation gave some insight into that, you know, of people just as communities saying no against the the norm uh, normal concepts. He talked about, of course, the Donald Trump, uh, Joseph Biden, you know, uh, controversies that went on in America. Um, but uh, the um, he says that using his language so you can understand the, the premise of the chapter before moving to look at some specific ways in which this modern notion of selfhood is reshaping our world it'll be useful to reflect upon a few important general concepts that provide a framework for better understanding the particular issues that face us the first is the nature of personhood the second is the politic politics of recognition and the third is the power of imagined communities and so you can see where you know i always got grossed out with that word of community and fitness, by the way. And I think this is where it comes from. <laughs> um, anyways, I had, I did have something underlined in here that I think he did a, such a great job of explaining. Oh yeah. This is a paragraph to take a banal example. Think of a typical teenager. There is no person more prone to emphasize independence and freedom than a teenager wanting to assert their emerging adulthood by breaking free of the constraints placed upon them by parents. Often this manifests itself in choice of clothing. Fashion is now frequently designed to be a deliberate and conscious, often iconoclastic contrast with that which preceded it and therefore to mark off the rising generation from previous ones. On occasion, it can be very specifically intended to represent a form of positive rebellion. The arrival of blue jeans in the 1950s and of miniskirts in the 1960s are two obvious examples, but every generation has its own uh, sartorial idioms for expressing its freedom and distinctiveness. Yet this choice of clothing, while intended as a display of individuality and independence, often leads teenagers to adopt a remarkably conformist appearance. In short, Teenagers frequently all look, dress, and talk like each other. <laughs> oh, I just found that so cool inside of this uh, chapter of, you know, people trying to figure out if we make these intentional decisions in vacuums, you know. And, uh, but we don't. In a lot of cases, we just are conforming based upon what's going on, you know. And of course, this is on the back end of talking about the word community. Uh, he finishes uh, with, the importance of this will become clear when we look at the challenges that rise of the LGBTQ plus movement poses to traditional freedoms, such as those of speech and religion. Such things were once considered basic essentials to a free society. Now they are coming to be seen not merely as unimportant social luxuries, but as antithetical to a truly just and free society. And his conclusion, I would ask everyone to go and read that for this chapter, because it's a uh, it's a game changer of a very sum, easily summarized but very effective way of 
going from the self and the change of the self and the importance of the self and the loss of tradition and, uh, you know, kindly going through that and finding the language of the next chapter, which is, of course, about the sexual revolution of the LGBTQ+. So in this, uh, he does a really good uh, job of going through, um, I think, a very simple, short way of um, getting to what he calls a marriage of convenience and how all this came to, like how all, just in simple terms, how do all the letters come together? Um, and uh, he starts the chapter by saying there's three noteworthy things that are important for in this conversation. First, the coalition arose out of a shared sense of victimhood. Second, both lesbians and gays and bisexuals assume the importance of biological sex differences. And then third, standing in significant tension with the second point, in, in, in allying themselves with gay men, lesbians set aside the importance of biology in order to present a common front against a common enemy, heteronormative society. So you can see that he starts the, you know, transit ideology, you know, perspective from uh, different thinkers, as I said, that came out of those uh, those thought process of Simone de Beauvoir. Um, but ironically, you know, a note from Marx that he actually mentioned in the manifesto, Communist Manifesto, he noted in the manifesto, um, and he said, as production came to be increasingly automated, and as raw physical strength therefore became less significant in the workplace, the difference between men and women would shrink. Think about that for a second. And then, of course, he takes an angle through uh, Simone de Beauvoir, um, who said, uh, one is not born, but rather becomes woman. No biological, psychic, or economic destiny defines the figure that the human female takes on in society. It is civilization as a whole that elaborates this intermediary product between the male and the eunuch that is called feminine. So you can imagine with that kind of starting point through to Judith Butler and her perspectives, um, how, you know, the T in the LGBT got into trouble, right? So he gives a pretty great rendition. There's so much reading out there today on this one. I've, I've done multiple on this actual podcast based upon this. Um, but uh, he, he goes through it. He gives an interesting background, too, as to where that came from, from Eastern, you know, thinking, what he called the Yogyakarta principles, and how they summarized a particular point that really, you know, stuck well with the, with, with the T in the LGBT portion. Um, there's some readings in there of things that I agree with, with the therapeutic, what he calls the therapeutic phenomena. Um, and, uh, yeah, have lots of agreements. Uh, and the, he also discusses some, you know, uh, great legal readings, uh, like Bostock versus Clayton in 2020, um, where trans ideology was thus confirmed as the law of the land when it came to matters of employment, um, and how it came to be. I mean, uh, and then of course this seeps into sport and restrooms and prisons, um, and as, as the story goes, you know, um, um, you can read When Harry Became Sally that gave a, a good perspective of this, if you can still get it on Amazon. Um, but that was, it was a really good chapter on that. Now, in Chapter 8, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, you know, really hit home for me in this particular show called Living a Larger Life and 
we focus on the conversation, or I do anyways, on my thoughts around life and uh, progression in life and challenges in life and potential of life, you know, and I uh, discuss infrequently, but I'm hoping you can see from my listenings and readings and interests that I really try to understand that whole idea, which sounds simple, but it's, uh, it's big, right? What is life? You know, what is uh, not only life, what is existence? What is that life process? What's inside of that? life? What's the meaning of that life? You know, it's, it's big. Um, but that's one thing where, again, as he goes on here to, to summarize and try to create some solutions to these issues, um, that's where we meet eye to eye, right? We prize life. I consider personal freedom of central importance, you know, and uh, so does Carl in his writings, you know, and that's why also I, I loved uh, Jefferson's perspectives, you know, on what he brought to the, to the show, especially for America. Um, so in this chapter, he does talk about life, talks about utilitarianism, uh, Peter Singer's work in this, um, how we come to understand that with liberty. Um, he does discuss some of the issues and problems that come with religion and how that is, um, you know, can be, you know, have its finger pointed at it based upon certain actions that were done from religious sources that led to uh, a lot of the controversies um, for today. Um but then he gives a good uh, idea of what tolerance versus equality means, you know, and uh, notes some difference between the framers of the original, you know, arguments that were uh, given to this, which leads to um, the issues that we will have today with regards to free speech. Um, and uh, as a side note from this, if anyone wants to read uh, Heather McDonald's work when uh, uh, race trumps merit, um, or any of her readings, actually, over the past four or five years, I think she does a bang-up job of this, if anyone wanted to go on all that. And, um, yeah, and it does hit as well at the heart, especially inside of this, for this conversation of liberty uh, about books, you know, and book burning and the big conversation today. I listened to a, a great debate from Yashamonk and Chris Rufo yesterday on Open to Debate. Um, I think uh, Chris won it. Um, uh, I, I agree with most uh, things uh, with regards to uh, what Chris has to say. I'm also a follower and uh, a reader of Yashamonk and Persuasion, but I really don't think that um, he had he, he came to the gunfight with a, a paper sword, and uh, Chris just has his stuff locked and. Um, and when it comes to, you know, this idea of what Carl Truman in this book talks about with regards to our liberties and our pursuits of happiness and contentment, you know, it does land on some of those things, right? Like what is going to be taught and what are books that are going to be allowed and who gets to read those books and what ages are appropriate for those books. I mean, these are good conversations to have. And um, I can, uh, it doesn't mean it's right, but I can understand where government now has to step in and say, you know, this is what we want, you know, this is the feedback from parents and communities, and this is what we want to have read, and this is the things that we don't want to have read. So when you say that, we don't want to have this read, you can understand how people like Yasha Monk are scared shitless, because I think a lot of people on that side are just, they're just scared that they think just all this religious virtuosity is going to come with those, uh, those things. I don't think, uh, I think a lot of the um, things that are being done to keep some of this 
um, you know, adult-like things out of children's uh, libraries and uh, school curriculum. I think that just makes sense. You know, I just think it makes sense. I'm not uh, thumping a Bible when I, when I come at that conversation. I'm just saying, like, what do I want my eight-year-old uh, reading and having access to? And, uh, yeah, it's pretty clear. But anyways, inside of this chapter, you know, it does bring up some of those questions on book banning. And the final chapter he finishes with uh, called Strangers in This Strange New World. And for this, you know, I, again, this is where I draw, if I was to read through this and not, you know, read any of the religious language to it, um, I agree that there's a lot of very similar things that I agree with on what makes sense to me as to what the solutions would be. Um, and I personally wouldn't use a Christian lens lens for that, but I could completely, just to summarize what I said from the beginning, but I completely understand if we can all get in the room and talk about what we think is principled, you know, what we think makes sense for all, and if we can all get agreement upon that, and then we can add this kind of uh, calm but not over-regulatory concept of government to that conversation, um, I think we can get there. Now, I'm just, you know, that's, that's I'm being very Pollyannish, I guess, with that idea, because I really don't think that's going to happen. I think reality is we're just going to battle it out and go back and forth on this until it's the end of the Republic. But uh, I mean, that's just my thoughts. Um, and in this last chapter, he talks about, you know, trying to create some uh, learnings that we can get grasp from the ancient church, you know. Um, and he lays out a pretty uh, powerful understanding of some of the things that we can get behind, you know. Um, about uh, language, right? So he says things, we should call it cultural protest, not cultural wars. You know, um, he discusses, you know, symbolism, you know, saying that uh, the difference between the believers and non-believers is, um, uh, you know, are we citizens of the earthly city or, or are we citizens of uh, the city of God, right? And uh, my belief is that we are citizens of the earthly city. And believers would believe they're, they're, they're members of the city of God. Um, but he does talk about the way in which we can come to agreement on those things. And I really like that. Um, I disagree, again, with the notion that uh, it comes from an evil perspective. I don't think it does. Again, that goes back to that break in Rousseau as an example. Um, I think it's stupidity uh, in which some people do what they do. I don't think it's always evil. And uh, there, is a, there is a place in there for that. Um, and he then goes on to give, I guess, a further understanding of how um, you could teach what he would call the whole counsel of God. So a broader definition, you know, of biblical, biblical worship and singing and uh, thinking about natural laws and conversation on natural laws, which I really like, um, to get us to an understanding, you know, as to how are we going to get to a point where, you know, I got to give it to him. At least he's finishing. I say this all the time. I, get, I, I give credit where credit is due to individuals who at least make an attempt. I also am cr critical of individuals who make an attempt that I don't think is good. As you've heard before, if you're a common listener to my book reviews, you'll recognize that I, I think some people make an attempt for some solutions, but they're actually bad, um, in my opinion. Um, but uh, Carl takes a good stab, and I always appreciate that. You know, it's what I it's also it's what I appreciate. Actually, I've always said this in uh, individuals who have a religious point of view and they want uh, just good values out there and they want good principles. These are the people that surround me. You know, I'm surrounded in my life by individuals that are like this. 
And that's what binds us, right? It's, it's principles. It's the principal uh, method of what makes sense. You know, in my mind, what makes sense, you know, not what is, but what makes sense. Um, or not only what is, but what makes sense. And um, I got to give it to him. He did a, a pretty good job of that. So if anything, uh, to review, I'll give this a, a 9 out of 10 only because, you know, I'm just going to give it a 10 out of 10. That's what I'll actually write to. I'll give it a 10 out of 10. It's just really good. Uh, I've also got some good readings that I always love picking up things that increase my uh, reading. Uh, Reich's stuff as well as Oscar Wilde from this particular book, as well as uh, Erica Bacchiochi who wrote uh, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. It's a book that I have on the dock for the summer. In the fall, I have goals of going through all the feminist literature. I have nine books lined up there in my bookshelf, uh, from Mary Wollstonecraft all the way up to whatever would be called the fifth wave of feminism today. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, again, I'm almost halfway through Democracy in America. I'm taking that to Coeur d'Alene with me. And I look forward to finishing that. Over the summer, um, and I'm just blabbing here what's occupying me with regards to reading, but I'm, I'm pleased. Yeah, this is where I was on the point I was making. I'm pleased that uh, I continue to be uh, not only uh, more knowledgeable, but inspired by people uh, who are on that religious right, because I do appreciate their intention. And I appreciate when, when they come at it with like just being a really good person. And I know that's hard to qualify, but when they come at it from being a really good person and not a nefarious actor, uh, I love their, their willing, their, their certainty. I'm very attracted to that. I love people who have guts and, and want to stick their neck out uh, on, and go for it with what they believe in. Um, and I really appreciate that. And that comes out in Carl's writings. Um, so I do appreciate that. I'm very thankful that uh, uh, my friend John put me on to the Subversive Podcast for me to be able to read uh, a booklet like this. Um, and it does help me in the understanding of this whole mess that we're in with regards to identity and sexual revolutions and or the sexual revolution, uh, the politicized identities, the sexual politic politicization today. I'm great that I got another angle, another specific angle. And uh, I'm also happy that I learned about the, the like how another person who is not a Christian would take this as an angle to get to the same points, right? Because I have read those books as well. And uh, it's really good that there's some similar, similar lines in there that mix with... Uh, through romanticism and as far back as his lineage, you know, in the 1400s, how all that came to be with regards to tradition and defining that. Um, but I think the essential thing, if anyone's going to take from it that they may want to continue on reading more is about the self, you know, um, and everything about that, about uh, identity. You may even have to go back to old uh, readings and old um, uh, scientists to start that point, I know I just picked up a couple of books from uh, Henry James and William James, uh, just based upon that rabbit hole I went down based upon that. And uh, so it'll be helpful. Anyways, 10 out of 10, Strange New World by Carl R. Truman.